Acts chapter 20 is where we are. We go through books of the Bible. We are in Acts 20. There are 28 chapters. I went to public school, but I could figure that out. Eight left. As we study the history of the early church, Luke is the author. He also wrote the gospel account that has his same name. We're calling it the Spirit-Empowered Mission. Spirit-Empowered Mission. We keep talking about the Missio Dei, the mission of God. All right? It did not begin with Dan Aykroyd and, and you know, uh, John Belushi trying to raise money for a Catholic orphanage. Actually, the Missio Dei, the mission of God, begins with God himself. Way back in Genesis 2, Genesis 3, in the garden. God's mission is God's redeeming, God's restoring and renewing all things through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, the church, are joining God on his mission as we retell the story that Jesus Christ was sent from the Father, became a man, took on flesh and bones like us, yet without sin, lived the perfect life, lived the, uh, uh, the law of God, the will of God perfectly, and died an atoning death on the cross, bearing the wrath we deserve, paying the penalty for our sins, and then he was buried in a tomb. And then three days later, on Sunday morning, Jesus Christ rises from the dead, not resuscitated, but risen King and Lord from the dead, conquers sin, conquers hell, conquers death, conquers Satan. It's not advice. We don't give advice here. We give good news. That's the gospel, good news. For several weeks, we've been studying this, this months actually studying the, the Acts, but the past several weeks we've been studying the Apostle Paul, this, this pastor, this church planter, this, this leader, this pioneer of the early church. And last week, if you remember, we were in chapter 19, Paul is in Ephesus, and, and this week he's saying goodbye to the same men that he taught for three years as he tells them to meet, uh, meet him in Miletus. Last week in chapter 19, if you remember, the chapter ended with Paul on the run, uh, he, uh, some of the disciples were, were caught up in an amphitheater where there was a riot, and um, Paul wanted to go in and help his, 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 his friends, his, the fellow disciples, and the, and, and the brothers said to him, Look, Paul, don't go in there, and they kind of protected Paul at the end of chapter 19. It actually closes with the town clerk, if you remember, standing up as this riot was happening in Ephesus, um, Ephesian church, and he says to them, listen, we got to stop this rioting because if we continue, the Roman government will come in. And, and really, if they come in, things are going to go get bad. They're going to charge us with rioting, and they're going to put their foot down, and things won't go well for the locals. That's how the chapter ended. One of the things, as we look at this third missionary journey of Paul, one of the things I want you to know as we jump into this text is that Paul, during his third missionary journey, I think I have that picture back up there. Um, I do have the remote, too. Paul's on his third missionary journey, and while he's visiting the churches in Asia Minor, uh, it's in here, Asia Minor, he is collecting um, money for the church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem had, had a, a serious famine come in Jerusalem, and the churches there, brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem, were under severe famine, and Paul wanted to go back to Jerusalem after his third missionary trip. Remember, mission trips begin in Antioch and end in Antioch. But before he wanted to get there, he wanted to go to Jerusalem and, and bring with him a financial gift to help the churches. Okay, read that in Acts chapter 19 he talks about it. He talks about it in Philippians and other letters. So that's what he wants to do. 1 Corinthians 16 he talks about it. So he's on his way, if you see, through Asia Minor. Okay, here's where he's at now. And he's going to go through Asia Minor into Europe, Macedonia, 
Achaia, Corinth, down to Athens. And his plan was, as we will see, because we're not going to look at the whole text of, of chapter 20, just part of it. His plan was to leave Athens and sail to Jerusalem. But he found out there were some people, some Jewish folks, that wanted to bump him on the, off on the way. Most theologians, most commentaries say that when Paul get on these ships, they would be packed with people. So, you know, it would be dark out. Somebody hit him over the head and throw him overboard. That's what he was concerned about. And that's probably not, not a good thing. I would not go either. But so he's like, I'm not going. I'm not, I got things to do. The Lord has called me to teach. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to come to Corinth. And then he finds out about that, you know, knocking him off, swimming with the fish, however you want to put it. And that's the way we put it. But anyway, that's another story. So he goes, ah, no, no, no. I'm going to go back up to Macedonia, over to Troas. And then we'll find him down at Miletus. So he kind of backtracks because they're trying to kill him. Okay, so that's kind of where we're at. He's, he's, got, he's, he's collected some funds. He wants to get to Jerusalem. And he's backtracking back down. So follow with me if you can. I just want to read that portion of scripture. Everything I just said is not a lie so you could see it for yourself. After the uproar, chapter 20 of Acts, after the uproar ceased, that's the riot, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed to Macedonia which is Europe. When he had gone there through the regions, having given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. It's in the Grecian kind of Corinth area. There he spent three months. When a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he set sail from Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. He's heading back up. Sopater, the Berean son of Pyrrhus, and accompanied him, and Thessalonicus, and Articus, and all these other kind of cool names. And then verse 5 They went on ahead of him, waiting for us at Troas. Okay, that's right here. So he's gone back up. Troas is right there. Okay, you remember Troas because that was the place where uh, Peter got his vision to go over. He was near Troas. He's like, come on over to Macedonia. Remember earlier on in Acts. So he's over there in Troas. On the first day of the week, that's chapter 20, verse 7, something interesting happens. We're we're just going to read this. On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, so he's back with his, his, his disciples, his friends, his, his fellow soldiers of the cross, uh, of the gospel, and he's in Troas now. Paul talks with them and intend on departing the next day, and he prolonged his speech until when? Okay, so don't give me a hard time. <laughs> now, I want you to notice something else, too, just really quickly. On the first day of the week, that's Sunday. So you already see the transition. The resurrection of Jesus changed their gathering and preaching and teaching from Saturday to Sunday, right there in chapter uh, 20, verse 7. Okay. There were many lamps in the upper room, verse 8, and they were gathered. And a young poor man named, I added that myself, Eutychus, sitting in the window, sinking into a deep sleep. Okay, you can see things are not going well. That's where um, that, that word deep sleep is where we get our word hypnosis from. Paul's putting them to sleep. Okay? Awaken if you're falling down. Okay. Paul, Paul's, he's falling. It's late. It's late. He's been working all day. It's late. He's overcome by sleep, verse 9, and he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. People say, well, he didn't really die. Dead. Luke, the physician, wrote this. He's dead. Not mostly dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed, his life is in him. Almost as if uh, in the Old Testament when you see one of the prophets just lay over them and a boy comes to life, right? You know the story. 
When Paul had gone up and broken bread, communion, he conversed with them a long time until daybreak and so departed and they took the youth away alive and were not little comforted. In other words, Lucas saying they were extremely comforted. Verse 13, but going ahead to the ship and set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. But when he met us at Asos, he went, took him on board and went to Melin, and sailing from there, came to the following day opposite Chios, and the next day he touched at Samos. So he's doing a lot of traveling, and he winds up in Miletus, verse 15. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not sp- have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to go to Jerusalem. We talked about that. If possible, on the day of Pentecost. So he doesn't want to stop in the city where all, those, uh, um, where all the disciples were. He wanted to go past that, which is past that is over here, because mostly, I think, because of the weather. Pentecost was coming. I mean, it says that in the very end. He uh, wanted to be there. You know, the weather isn't like today, and, and they had, didn't have the ships of today. So he wanted to get further south so that he can get to Jerusalem before the day of Pentecost. So here he is in Miletus, calls for the elders in the Ephesian church. Okay, and that's what we're going to pick up in chapter 20, verse 17. Now, the outline is pretty simple. It's just two points. Okay, a lot of subpoints, but only two points. The characteristics, we're going to look at the characteristics of Paul as a servant, and then we'll see the challenge of Paul that he gives to these shepherds in Ephesus. Verse 17, chapter 1. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. All right, we saw that last week. I served the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. It's hard not to sense in these verses that Paul is kind of defending himself. Doesn't it sound that way? You know how I was among you. You know the motives. You know, it's almost like there were some people that were talking bad and trash about Paul, and Paul starts to talk to them and, and reminding them of how he lived while he was ministering to them. This here in your Bibles, in, in Acts chapter 20, this speech which he gives, just so you know, is the only place in all of Acts where Paul is speaking, and we hear it, and we see it, and it's written for us, to Christians. All other expositions, all other speeches are all preaching of the gospel. So we have an insight into what Paul is going to say to his brothers and sisters, only place in the book of Acts. That was free. Now Paul is talking to the elder. So I don't want to, you're saying, well, I, I, I'm not an elder. Okay. Maybe some of you guys are, as First Timothy 3, aspiring to be elders. You need to pay attention. But I, I don't want everybody else to fall asleep for a couple of reasons. One is, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit draw something and teach you here. It's not just for them, it's for you as well, number one. Number two, this will, I hope, will help you know how to pray for me, know how to pray for the other pastor elders in the church. There's three of us right now with two other men on uh, process, what they call pastoral process we're going through, and Pastor Ricky, of course, the executive pastor. So this is how I, not only do I want you to learn, I want you to grow, I want you to see what the Spirit of God is going to show you, but how you can pray for us as well, okay? 
We're on the same page? All right, good. So Paul, I don't think Paul is, 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 is prideful in this and is reminding them, uh, but he feels the necessity to look back at his life and, and, and look back honestly and remind them of what his motive was. It says that he, was, that he shared with them all the things and he served the Lord with humility and with tears. So he was not seeking his own glory, looking for his own fame, trying to get the, the name of Paul recognized as he was declaring the good news of Jesus. Even, even during trials, even at times when his own people were trying to kill him, trying to take him out, Paul says, I, I, I was serving the Lord in humility. Now, the word humility in those days was rather uh, actually a negative connotation to it in, in that day. Um, not in the Bible, but in, in, in the customs of the day. It was, it was like a, um, a, a cowering, a, a, a loathing of oneself. But the Bible takes the word humility and, and turns it into something that is good. And, and, and basically, understanding of humility is that someone, you see this in Paul, who's willing to lay down his life and say to the Lord, as you will, as you please, I am your servant, you are my God. Right? So it's like telling the, 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 the potter, you're the clay telling the potter, mold me, Lord, as you wish. Holman Bible Dictionary says, humility is a personal quality in which an individual shows dependency upon God and respect for other people. So Paul's saying, in, in, in utter yieldedness and, and submissiveness, here I am, Lord. It, you see his life lived out that way because he says he was serving others. I mean, he was loving others. He's serving others just like Jesus, right? Just like Jesus. It's the opposite of feeling, you owe me. I've done this, now you owe me. That, that was not the Apostle Paul. That was absolutely not Jesus, right? It, it, it's, it's the opposite of that. And humility, you see this here. He, he talks about it um, later on. He says he goes from house to house, from, from, from Jew and Gentile. In other words, humility is, is the emptying of oneself, as Jesus says, and, and caring for other people. Verse 24, he says, he doesn't count his life as a value, nor as precious to himself. If only I may what? Finish my course and the ministry that I received from Jesus from the Lord Jesus Christ, to testify, I want to testify, again, not, not advice, good news, to the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ, the grace of God. Verse 24, he says that. So humility engages the work of, of God that he's been entrusted to us, and we do it humbly. Um, it wasn't about Paul. It wasn't about his kingdom, pastor elders, soon-to-be, wannabe, brothers and sisters, it's not about your kingdom. It's not about your fame. It's about his kingdom. It's about his fame. Right? It's about what God is doing. It's about his reputation. Pride can be an ugly thing. And I think that... I'm speaking to myself, so, you know. I think the more effective, the more success brings a greater diligence against pride. Amen? George Whitfield is an 18th century evangelist, very successful preacher. Thousands upon thousands would come in here and preach. And everybody would tell him how great and wonderful orator and preacher he was. And he would say to them, I know. The devil just told me that as I was stepping down from the pulpit. So 
Again, not self-loathing. It's not thinking of yourself less. It's thinking of yourself self-less, not less worthy. You understand what I mean? So it's not, it's not considering yourself, but considering others. That, that's humility. And Paul's ministry was about considering others as he fought the good fight, as he served Christ. Look what it says. It says he did it with tears. Now, I don't think he was a crybaby, but I do think at times... He served others with tears, with brokenness. His motive was serving the Lord. He did it in humility and brokenness and in tears. Look at verse 20. Look at the method. I didn't shrink back. I didn't shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Three years, Paul gave of himself to teach both in the church in the gathering, and from home to home. He didn't draw back. He wasn't uh, afraid. He did it with boldness and courage. Uh, he was a man of courage. Paul's about teaching publicly and privately to everyone who would listen. So may we never get to the place, may you never get to the place that we look down on certain cultures, certain expressions of culture, certain uh, um, uh, uh, economic classes, political differences. Everyone, all people, Jew and Greek, house and corporate gathering, Paul was about proclaiming in humility and in tears the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And I truly believe this, that Paul's ability to not look down on certain class, certain people, I become all people, all to all people, he says in 1 Corinthians 9. I think his ability to be able to not look down at others was due to his own pride issues that came crashing down when he came to faith in Jesus Christ, when Christ came to him in in Acts 8 and and knocked him off his horse. I I think he had his own issues of of how bright he was, how how educated he was, um, his heritage, his success as, as a Pharisee. I think he had his own pride issues. And then when he comes to faith in Jesus Christ, he writes to the Philippian church, all these things I gained, I count now as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, the greater value, the greatest treasure of of, of the universe in Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as dung in order that I may gain Christ. When the gospel, when the truth of the gospel goes deeper into our heart, penetrates our heart, drives deeper in the stake of our souls, there can't be prejudices. They both can't exist. And I want you to notice here that that Paul's manner was one of courage and not exclusivity, exclusivity with, with pre- preaching the gospel. But look at the beautiful balance between truth and love and tears. Declaring to you, he says, anything that was profitable, yet doing it with love and tears, he says. That's how you keep yourself in check, right? When you're a people group, and we are, who proclaim the good news of Jesus, we have the truth, on the way, the truth, and the life, in order to not to become an arrogant jerk, one must be humble with tears, right? It's easy to become egotistical knowing the truth, but Paul has a balance. I speak the truth, I love you, but I'm doing it with tears and humility. You notice that? Because truth without love makes one arrogant, 
Truth without love makes one arrogant, yet truth with love builds people up. You say, well, that, that, that's great. I didn't make that up, actually. It's in 1 Corinthians 8. Knowledge puffs you up, but love builds you up. Okay? And, and let me just say this before we leave this point. The, the, looking at the method. I'm going to go back and forth. I hope, you, I hope you follow me. If Paul is writing to the elders, the leaders of the church, let me ask you this. Are you willing to, are you willing to listen? Are you willing to heed to the people God has placed over your life as leaders who love you, who are trying to serve the Lord in humility, according to Hebrews 13, a call to keep watch over your souls if they needed to speak to you about something in your life? Are you willing to do that? Are you building relationships within your community groups, brothers and sisters living life together in such a way that you say, if you need to speak to me, brother, if you need to speak to me, sister, I know you love me. Speak to me. I have men in my life like that. I've said this many, many times. In the pastoral board, especially in the Council of Elders, Perry Jones, Bill Blake, love me. I have no question. Speak to me. I would hear what they have to say. And it may be hard words, but hard words produce soft men toward the Lord. Amen? Okay. He says, I'm not keeping no secrets. I'm saying everything I need to say publicly and privately, whatever's profitable. I'm not holding anything back. Whatever's true in the gospel and helpful to the faithful, he proclaiming both publicly and privately. Verse 27, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now look at his message, verse 21. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks to repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. Now repentance in the Old Testament, in, in the Hebrew, combined two verbs, to return and to feel sorrow. In the New Testament, metanoia means to change one's mind. I get that. But when you look at totality of Scripture, that's what we need to do when you, when you study a word. You don't look at just one verse. You look at the totality of Scripture. And it's very clear that repentance is not just a change of mind, but it's a change of mind and attitude and a change of life. Ezekiel 14, therefore to the house of Israel, the Lord God says, repent and turn from your idols and turn away your faces from all abominations. Stop doing that and turn this way. Matthew 3, 8, John the, 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 the Baptist said, bring forth fruit of your repentance. In other words, let's see the life. The fruit is not repentance itself, but true repentance, the true turning will produce fruit. It's the evidence of genuine repentance the rebellion toward god now is a submissiveness to him it involves the mind the will the emotion let me illustrate for you what this means if you're not a christian here this morning what does it mean to repent paul says repent and believe on jesus there was a town in um labrador canada it was a completely isolated village Completely isolated. And one day, uh, they began to cut a road through that wilderness. It's called um, Wabush, I think that's how you pronounce it. I don't know. But they, they, they began to cut this road, this, take down this, this heavy, dense uh, trees and brush and built this road into the village. And when they had completed the road, the people in Wabush were able to get in and they were able to get out once they got in. There was only one way in. There was only one way out. Each of us, the Bible says that by birth, by nature and by choice, are born in the village in the city called sin. Okay? 
all have sinned, all fall short of God's glory. We all have idols in our hearts. We all worship false and and created things rather than the creator God. And yet God makes that way, builds that road himself through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But in order to take that road, one must turn around and walk out. That complete about face is what the Bible calls repentance. And without it, there's no way out of the town. There's no way to faith. There's no way for salvation. There is no way for forgiveness of sins without repentance. The Bible calls repentance and faith the way to salvation. It's not works. It's, it's one coin, two sides. Repentance turns and faith looks to Christ as one turns for the pardon of sin through his shed blood that I'm trusting not in my own goodness, my own righteousness, but in the work of Jesus on the cross who died for me in my place, bared my judgment, my wrath, my deserved punishment on himself. His righteousness was given to me. He's my only mediator. He's my only redeemer. He's my only advocate. Both faith and repentance are gifts. It's not about human effort. You can't work your way. You got to go the road in which God made for you. Jesus came in Mark chapter 1, comes on the scene. The first thing he says is repent. Turn, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus teaches his disciples after his ascension. He says, it is written that the Christ should suffer, rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. So true repentance, biblical repentance, is not just turning. It's, it's turning from sin. It's turning to Jesus. There's faith in Jesus. And the message is both for Jews and Greeks. And Paul was motivated by the call. His, his modus operandi was humility and courage. And his method, it didn't matter. He loved everybody. And you know what? He was so bent and his mind was made up. Look with me at verse 22. I don't have the verses up. We'll read 22 through 27 of 19, of 20, excuse me. Verse 22. And now, after testifying to the Jews and the Greeks, repentance of God, faith in Jesus Christ, now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. We talked about that. Constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. But I do not count my life any value nor precious to myself. If only that I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from Jesus Christ. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among, uh, among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will ever see my face again. Verse 26. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink back. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I'm going to Jerusalem. He reminds the Ephesians leaders of the example of while he was present. Now he's preparing him for the future when his absence. And he says, I have done all this before you. It wasn't about money. But there's a, there's a, there's a sense of ominous expectations of what will happen in Jerusalem. But regardless of that, the ministry was declaring the gospel of grace. Wherever you may face, whatever he may face, he counts it as, as his own life less valuable than the value of God. That's what he's saying. The word account has to do with a, a legal term. 
language of business. Paul's saying, I look at my life, I look at my life, and then the life of the one who gave his life for me, and I found my worth is in the service and the worship and the mission of the one who came on mission to save me. And he says, like a race. He compares it to a race. He said the same thing with Timothy. I've been poured out as a drink offering, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy 4. And now my departure has come. 2 Timothy is the last letter Paul will ever pen to his comrade, his soldier he spent years with. When you read 2 Timothy, think Paul is about to die. He's waiting for death. He's writing to his friend whom he loves, a brother whom he loves, a son whom he loves, because he's going to die soon. And he writes to Timothy, I've already been poured out. My time of departure has come. I'm, going, I'm on my way. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul is faithfully walking with God, wherever it may take him. Whatever he may face, he's going to carry out his ministry. I think one of the, one of the, one of the ways, and I'm, I, I, I just want you to hear me, someone who loves you, one of the ways I think that we are not as effective is because of this principle. Because we don't have our priorities straight. We don't have our, 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 our value straight. We don't have our mind made up. We value our lives more than we value God. We value the things we want to do rather than valuing the mission of God, the declaration, the proclaiming, teaching, and, and the demonstrating in love the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we value the praise of others more than we esteem God. Paul concludes at verse 26. I'm innocent of the blood. I did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. I told you, leaders, I told you, church, while I was there, I gave you the whole counsel. I shared with you everything I needed to share with you um, you can walk well if you listen to what I've taught you, if you listen to what I've said, if you jotted down notes, you're working on it yourself, you're, you're in the word. My blood, the blood is not on my hands. I did all I could do. And he, he's reminiscent of Ezekiel. And twice in Ezekiel, uh, God calls the, the watchman to come to the house. And he says, as I speak, you speak. And when you speak, the blood will be on their own hands. But if you do not speak, blood's on your hands. And Paul's like, listen, I, I did all I could do. I taught the whole counsel of God. He lived the spirit-empowered mission. He taught them well. He called them to repentance. Now the responsibility is on them. And that's all we could do, is it not? That's all we could do. Testify to the gospel. To proclaim the good news, the full counsel of God. The response is not ours, but the hearer's responsibility. The characteristics of, of, of Paul. His method, his, his, his mission, his motive... And now look at the challenge. Look at, look at verse uh, 17. The first thing I want to just point out, if I can, look at the challenges of Paul, is look, at, look back up to chapter uh, 20, verse 17 with me. I want to point something out. His three, the threefold office. We're talking to the elders. Verse 17, he calls who? From my latest, the elders to come together. He says, go call the elders of the church. Bring them to me in my latest. The word, by the way, is in the plural. Just like here at King's Chapel, there's a plurality of elders. Not just one guy, there's a plurality. It's a team effort. 
First, let me tell you that the word elder in the Hebrew, because that's where it gets its roots from, could mean, many times meant, an older aged person, a bearded man who had wisdom and was, was older. It also could refer not to a man who was older, but a man who had experience, but to a man who was, uh, who was dedicated, who was called to, who was taking uh, a position in um, a role, a leadership role. Uh, Deuteronomy 27, Numbers 11 70 tribal leaders who assisted Moses, they were elders. They were the older men who took leadership over those, the tribes, okay? In the New Testament is the word presbyteros, presbyteros, okay? Presbyterian, you get, we get that word from that. Like Hebrew, it's both used as an older man who's wisdom, who has wisdom, but it's also used, elders also used as a role, as a, a function, as, as a person who takes leadership in a church, Called the Presbyteros, he's, he's the elder, okay? And, and, and I think, well, look at verse 28. Pay attention, now who's he talking to? He's talking to the elders, Presbyteros. He's talking to, the, to, the, to the, those who hold the office of eldership in the church that he brought, that he called for. And he says to the elders, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourself, elder, and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit made you what? An overseer to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Now, circle that word overseer. You might have in your translation bishop. Overseer is translated bishop in some translations. It's the word episkopos. It is um, the, the uh, skopos to look. Um, epi is to look over. So he's an overseer. He, he, he directly oversees what's going on. He's an overseer. Again, you see the plurality, or excuse me, the synonymous, it's plural too, by the way, but you see the synonymous use. He says, call the presbyteros, the elders, and he tells the elders, you bishops, the bishops that oversee, you're the overseers of the church. And you see the synonymous synonymous use of elder, presbyteros, and bishop or overseer, episkopos, they're the same person. The reason I think that that's used that way is one word has a Hebrew root the other one has a greek root so when you have churches with hebrew and jewish jewish people and non-jewish greek people they understand to be the same person so to the jews would understand elder from from back in the old testament and the greeks would understand um overseer bishop because that's whom that they would connect with so you see them both just jump down if you can oh no it's in verse 28 and one last thing i want to show you look what he says made you bishops, made you overseers, made you episcopos, elders, to care for the church. Now, the word care is the word shepherd, poemen. It means to shepherd the flock. That's why he uses uh, metaphors like the flock. We're a flock. And, he, and he's speaking to the, them, and he's saying, I want you to shepherd the flock. Okay, shepherd the flock. So these men were to pastor, because that's what the that's what a shepherd does. They're pastoring God's people. And the image of pastoring is very strong in the Old Testament. Jesus said even in the New Testament, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for a sheep. So what you see here is what we practice at King's Chapel, that Paul is telling them to have a team, be older men who've, who've lived their faith, who, who live their life, who live as an example, oversee the church, care for them, love them, protect them, and shepherd them. That's what pastor elders do. That's what we are called to do. 
okay, to provide for them, to protect them, to defend them from enemies, to, to, to lovingly lead God's people as under-shepherds, who is the great chief shepherd, head of the church, is Jesus. So as I said this before, men who want to be in authority have to be first under authority. We are under authority, and Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd. He's the, he's the senior pastor of this church, okay? Now get this, look what he says. The, the church is what? It's not their church, which he obtained with his own blood. This is a great verse for Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. Jesus is not God. Really? Care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Well, that sounds like Jesus to me, because the Father didn't shed his blood, Jesus did. That one's for free too, okay? So, Paul is saying, be overseers, it's not your church, it's not your kingdom, it's God's people, it's God's kingdom, it's God's uh, church, and you are to shepherd, you are to take oversight, you are to protect, to love, to care, with tears, proclaiming the whole counsel of God, teaching them, taking responsibility, and lovingly lead the church. Threefold office. Now, look at the threefold challenge. Verse 28, you see the first one. Pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. C.S. Lewis wrote a letter to Malcolm. He said, the true Christian nostril is to be continually attentive to the inner cesspool. What's in here? Right? We must never, leaders, elders, rise above thinking that we are above particular sins or have attained immunity to various temptations, but be on guard for yourself. Galatians 6, if anyone's caught in a transgression, he who is spiritual, you want to lead, you want to be spiritual, restore him in gentleness and a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch for yourself, lest you too be tempted. Leaders are to keep their relationship with God strong. Leaders are to... Uh, watch themselves, guard their hearts, guard their souls. I'm speaking to myself. They must obey what they teach and and follow what they preach. Uh, In many ways, some of the authority which is given us by God comes into play because if your life is a mess and you're not a man under authority, no one will follow you, nor should they. No one should follow you, I should say. So when we teach and obey the truth, then we could speak and have a right to speak into your life. Timothy 4.16, keep close watch for yourself. And your teaching, persist. In doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearer. So it's not selfish for the leaders to say, I need time for my soul. I just came back from a conference with Pastor Ricky for, for, uh, yesterday and all, uh, yesterday, all day yesterday and Friday afternoon. Feed my soul. Feed our souls, keeping watch. And when I teach it, it's the gospel that I'm proclaiming. Is that what the leaders of other Christian communities, godly men who've been serving the church a lot longer than I, are they, are they saying the same thing? Sin must be taken seriously, and we must guard our lives. Now, we're not talking perfection. If you're like, ah, oh, yeah, I saw you going up 9W in that 40-mile-an-hour zone. You were doing 45. Not perfection. You could say, look, slow down. When I was a young Christian, um, I, was, I was involved in a church, of course, and um, it, was, it was, I mean, it didn't crush my faith. I didn't walk away from Jesus, but I was, I was pleasantly surprised to see some of the leaders in, in the organization I was involved with, that like, yeah, 
that wasn't right. You know what I mean? Like, okay, all right. You know what I mean? Because sometimes we put people on a pedestal. There should be, we should be without, uh, above reproach, but that doesn't mean perfection. Okay, it doesn't mean perfection. We want to deal with life. We want to be first repentive of our own sins, right? So that we can love and care and, and, and confront, if need be, and love other people. So that's what we have to do. And, and we have to be diligent about it. Paul says, you are to be an example to the flock. Pay attention to yourself. A.W. Tozer said, do you know who gives me the most trouble? Do you know whom I pray for the most? Me, just myself. That's the one that gives me the most trouble. So where do you stand in our relationship, your relationship with God? Consecration to the word, feeding your soul. That's a question we have to guard ourselves. Pray for me. Pray for the other pastor elders that we guard our souls. That when temptation comes, that we don't do a, uh, get so involved and caught up in our sin that there's a train wreck coming. Pray for the pastor elders. Uh, uh, Richard Baxter, the Puritan, writes this. Take heed to yourselves. Talking to the pastors. He, he's a pastor of pastors. Take heed to yourself, lest your example contradict your doctrine. Unless you lay such stumbling blocks before the blind as may be the occasion of their ruin. Lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues, your lives, say with your tongues, and be the greatest hindrance of success of your own labors. One proud, he says, surly, lordy word, one needless contention, one covetous action may cut the throat of many words and blast the fruit of all that you've been doing. Okay, so watch yourself. Secondly, look what he says, verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flocks. He's saying, look, there are heretics, nut jobs, wing jobs that are coming in, antagonists, and they're going to attack spiritually healthy churches. The dead churches that have no mission, that are doing nothing for Jesus, Satan is just going to go by and go, they're doing exactly what I want to do. Why bother them? He says to the elders, feed the flock, watch them, care for them. There are wolves that will come and destroy and devour the sheep. That's why, family, that we believe so strongly in the Scripture. And to know and to teach the Word of God. To be able to detect and, and defeat religious hijackers and, and racketeers. Jesus said, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, Matthew 10. Back in chapter 6 of Acts, we saw that the pastor elders were involved in prayer, teaching of the Word, ministry of the Word, and they were getting sidetracked because of a fight that was going on in the midst of the congregation. And in chapter 6, the elders and the pastors, the overseers, one person, uh, plurality but one office, steps in and goes, hey, you know what, whoa, 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 let's get seven men with wisdom, have good reputation, and let them serve the tables. Why? So that the pastors and the elders can go back and study the word, preach the word, teach the word, oversee the congregation. It's not that it's below them, below me, but my main function as a pastor is to know and love the scripture and be able to teach it to you well, to protect. Because false teachers do not shepherd. They feed on people, right? They don't guide, they, 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 they devour people, okay? Third, and among from yourselves will arise speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So in other words, watch yourself, watch the wolves that'll come in, and you know what? Watch, because there are going to be people in your midst that are going to rise up, and they're going to be a problem. They're going to be heretics. They're going to be, they're going to be like the wolves, but they'll come in from among you. Okay? It's, it's one thing to say those outside will come in. It's another thing to say watch those within your own they will come in as wolves as well. 
<laughs> Thank you. Ezekiel 34, he talks about the shepherds of Israel, how they are, they are shepherding for their own glory, for their own money, for their own um, uh, financial gain. They're like hireling. Uh, uh, the Lord talks, them like, talks about them as thieves and robbers and hirelings. They have no real love for the sheep. They look out for themselves first. I think it's fair to say that one of the ways that sheep become wolves is when they're not serving others, loving others, caring for others, pouring themselves out in love to others. Because false teachers don't shepherd, feed or guide or love. They feed off the sheep. They don't feed the sheep. One of my, one of my uh, professors in, in Bible school said, you know, don't beat your sheep, but feed your sheep. Okay? Wolves seek their own glory, seek their own serving, right? They bring destruction. Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter says in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, shepherd the flock, elders. Exercise oversight, not on the compulsion, but willingly. Not for gain, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domin- uh, having dominion over them. Be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, that's Jesus, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. So, there's those who will need to watch themselves. There are those who need to watch those who are from the outside. And there are those who need to be careful because of the inside heresy and false teaching that's going on. Now, from time to time, I do this. From time to time, I don't make it a habit of it, but time to time, if there's something going on in our culture and in our world that is false, that is not according to Scripture, we bring it up. We talk about the, the, the gospel of the prosperity gospel, which is not a gospel at all. We talk about those who say, you know what, when you become a Christian, life goes great for you. You have money, you have relationships that are unhindered, you have no pain in your life if you just have faith. The problem with that, that understanding of Christianity doesn't even bring, doesn't even consider or even fit Jesus, who was poor, who had no place to lay his head, whose relationships, I would say, is a little strained, Everyone abandoned him. Pain, eh, maybe, beaten, whipped, dragged, hung on a Roman cross. I, I consider that pain. So it, that, that understanding of Christian and that, that gospel, that false gospel of prosperity, doesn't even fit Jesus. And what happens is we believe that nonsense. When things go wrong, you lose your job, someone dies, someone gets sick. God, where were you? You, you said if I believe in you, that, none of that stuff will happen. And he's going to say, no, I never said that. I said, in the world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. That's what he'll tell you. There's something else that, that's been going around, I think, lately, too. And, we, and they call it the, the hyper-grace, okay? Uh, another, another teaching that has been rising up, and, and it's, called, it's called, you know, this, this hyper-grace. Um, <laughs> let, let, me, let me just tell you what it is. This is by a pastor who wrote about the hyper-grace. He said, he summed it up well. He said this, this teaching called hypergrace is one of the fun, he says one of the foundational doctrines of hypergrace messages. God does not see the sins of his children since we have already been made righteous by the blood of Jesus and since all our sins, past, present, and future, have already been forgiven, that means that the Holy Spirit never convicts believers of sin, that believers never need to confess their sins to God, and that believers never need to repent of their sin since God sees them perfect in his sight. Now, now someone once said that heresy is truth taken to its extreme that's an extreme. That's an extreme. Now, I get it. 
I've read enough on it. I get it. They are, they are pushing back against the churches who have black eyes because they're so judgmental. They're so um, overbearing. They, they believe the more you do, they believe this moralistic salvation that you have to work at it. And that's what they teach. They do this, do this, do that. I get that. And hypergrace is pushing against that. I get that. But there's an extreme. That is an extreme for several reasons. Don't repent. Don't get convicted of sin. Let me just give you a few. The Bible makes it very clear in the New Testament that all people are to repent, both believers and unbelievers. Okay, here's the whole counsel of God. The nation of Israel, God's Old Testament people, were called, I'd be here all afternoon if I told you how many times the people of God were called to repent in the Old Testament. Just so many, I can't even count, number one. Number two, Jesus himself, his own words, read it for yourself, Revelation 2 and 3, tells the churches, seven churches, Seven. Seven churches. Out of seven churches, five of them, what does he say? Repent. He tells the church at Laodicea, this is what he says, Jesus, those whom I love, I reprove, I correct, and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. Peter, King David, Job repented. Repentance is a gift of God. It's vital in the life of of, of the Christian that brings an intimacy with Jesus. It's the way God works in our hearts, Hebrews 12, I go go so many places, to bring us to the place of being conformed to the image of Christ. Puritan Thomas Watson writes, repentance is a grace of God. It's a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed, changed. Paul writes to his Jewish brothers in Romans 2, reminding them of the character of God. He says, don't presume his riches and his kindness and his forbearance and patience. Don't presume that. Know that God's kindness, his character, is meant to lead you to repentance. There are people that teach that 1 John 1 about confessing sin wasn't written to Christians. Okay? If we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, he will cleanse us from our sins and wash us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Thousands of years, people said that was written to Christians. Now, just read the next verse. If if you're not sure, like, "Um, who's that really? You've got two arguments going on here. Read the next verse. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The next verse, remember, there's no numbers in the Bible. That was put in hundreds of years later. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you. I really don't need to know Greek, okay? I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone sins, which you will, you have an advocate before the fathers, Jesus, the righteous one. When you and I sin, as brothers and sisters and Christians, you and I feel, we feel bad, Repentance is a gift to you. Repentance is a gift to you, 2 Timothy 2.25, that brings about a deeper intimacy with Christ. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. In Matthew 6, forgive us of our trespasses as we also have forgiven our debtors. That's the proper Greek. That's the verb tense. So in other words, I've already been forgiven. Lord, let it be seen in my life as I forgive others. Colossians 3.13, bear with one another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. 
John Calvin writes, not only is it fitting to confess sins, which we commit daily, but graver offenses ought to draw us further and recall to our minds those which seem long since buried. One last, one last, one last understanding of, of this hyper-grace that's, that's not biblical. Somebody in that movement says that we are not to be sin-conscious. Now, if we confess and repent of sin, we're being sin-conscious, and therefore, that is not what the children of God do since they've been forgiven. I'm not sure what Bible that comes from, but I'll tell you what. I was sin-conscious only when I became a Christian. Like, I sinned all day long. I didn't care if you liked it or not. I didn't care if God liked it or not. Before I became a Christian, before the Holy Spirit has dwelled in my heart, I did whatever I wanted to do. I didn't call it sin, because sin, biblically, is rebellion to God. In his holiness, it's lawlessness against his law. It's not just doing something wrong. It's against and violates your creator. I didn't, if you said you're sinning, I'd be like, yeah, okay, whatever, get out of the way. You know what I mean? Like, sin consciousness only comes when one is a Christian. Romans 6, Romans 7, Paul says, the very good that dwells, you know, he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me. I desire to do what's right, but oh man, it's hard to live it out. You ever feel that way? I delight, he says, therefore, in the law, but I see the members of the law against me. He's talking about the war going on between my flesh, doing what I want to do, rebelling against God, and the Spirit of God that's saying, trust me. It doesn't mean as Christians we walk around with this riddled guilt. It means that repentance is a means of grace where we receive existentially here on this earth the forgiveness of God. Did God forgive all your sins, past, present, and future? Yes, if you're in the midst of a sin and you're a Christian and you die, that sin was paid for. I'm not saying it's not. I had somebody ask me, I was teaching at a, young, at a high school, and they were talking about eternal salvation, which I strongly believe in. They said, what if you are committing a sin and you die during that sin? We, are you saved? I said, I hope so, because the chance of me sinning when I die is really good. <laughs> and high school kids looked at me like, did you just say that? Yeah, yeah. There's a really good chance. I hope Jesus paid all my sins, okay? But that doesn't mean I come to my father. Rome, Hebrews 12 talks about being disciplined by God. How do you get disciplined? Romans 6 talks about uh, uh, um, not turning over and not obeying the, the deeds of the flesh. How did that happen without sin? So as Christians, all our sins, past, present, and future are forgiven. Man, there's so much scripture that says that we need to confess and repent. It's a gift from God. Now, some people need to heed 2 Timothy. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itchy ears will accumulate teachers for themselves, for their own passions. And these hyper-grace churches and teachers have a strong emphasis on grace. Amen. So do we. But they don't teach about sin. They don't teach about repentance and judgment. And they have an atmosphere of do whatever you want. So what they do is they take a truth, a, a, a precious truth, and twist it. And they say, all your sins are forgiven. We say amen. But they don't understand that glorification, Romans 8, the glorification of the body is when there will be no more sin. There will be a time when we will not struggle with sin, but that time has not come as long as you're still breathing and in this room. But here's the deal, and I want to end this, I want to end this point, and then we're going to finish. Here's the deal. What happens is when you get so beat up, and I've been down this road, you get so beat up from hyper-legalistic, hyper-moralistic, do, do, do preaching in the church and you feel so weighted down, 
so judged that you cling to grace because it's a breath of fresh air. I get that. But don't take it to the extreme because God uses discipline, correction, conviction to teach you about yourself so that the Bible says you're being transformed into the image of his son. It's a gift. It's a gift. Repentance is a gift to bring into a greater change, a greater, to look more like Jesus. So there's a repentance for salvation, but there's a repentance that all Christians who keep sinning, because we do, need to repent from. Verse 31. Let's read the rest. Just let's read it together. Therefore, be alert, remembering that these three years I did not cease day and night to admonish you with tears. I now commend you to the God, to the word of his grace, the gospel, which is able to build you up. Grace, the gospel, builds you up. You're so wicked, God had to die. You're so loved he, that he was glad to. Verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold. It wasn't about money like the wolves. You yourself know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to you those were uh, with me. Verse 35, in all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. Not about you. And remember the words of Jesus. More blessed to give than receive. Verse 35. And when he had said these things, he what? He knelt down, he prayed with all of them, and they were weeping and crying, all of them embracing Paul and kissing him on the cheek. That's the, that's the Eastern way of doing it. Even Italians do it to this day. Verse 38. Being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Now, I want to end, just give me one, two minutes actually, that's it, by pointing out that for centuries, people's commentators were talking how Paul, and all that's going on with Paul, his love for them, his care for them, is really Paul, Luke, who's writing it, comparing Paul with Jesus. You see that, right? Paul's been so conformed to the image of Christ, he cries out in Galatians, no longer I who live, but in Christ who lives in me. So Paul is so identified being transformed into the image of his Savior, he's walking in his footsteps. And you see Paul here repenting, excuse me, preaching repentance like Jesus. You see Paul here serving others with tears like Jesus, loving others in humility like Jesus. You see Paul uh, warning about the wolves like Jesus. You see the Jews attacking Paul like they did Jesus. And just like Paul, Jesus said in Luke 9, his face, listen, was set toward Jerusalem. Now Paul is meeting with the elders. He's facing Jerusalem. The Spirit says, it's going to be bad. You're going to be bound. You're going to be tied up. You're going to be arrested. But, but he goes anyway. Sacrificially, he goes. And just like Jesus. Here's the difference. Here's the difference. Notice it, folks. In this text, what you see is Paul with deep, deep, deep relationships. Lots of friends, lots of instructions, lots of tears, lots of crying, lots of weeping, lots of friendship. Paul goes to Jerusalem surrounded by friends, encouragement and love and weeping and cheek kissing. That is the very opposite of our good God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now listen. If you want to be gospel-centered, loving people, leaders of people who love and serve in humility and tears, you have to see this. 
Because at the end of Jesus' life, he went through the most horrific suffering, the dreadful pain and brutal torment and agony on the cross. And what did he do the night before he was crucified? Come with me, Peter, James, and John. I'm a human. I'm fully man, fully God. I want relationships. I want friendships. Come with me into the garden while I cry out to my God, my Father. What did they do? They fell asleep. His friendships, his friends, his companions left him alone. He was all alone. In that very dark hour of his life, Jesus finds himself alone. Can't you stay up? Can't you stay awake just one time? No, they fall asleep. But it doesn't stop there. Because the very next day, while Jesus was on the cross, hanging on the cross, dying for our sins, the Father turns his face away from Jesus. He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the sins of the world is poured out on him, Jesus in that moment becomes the loneliest man alive. He experiences an infinite cosmic loneliness that you can possibly imagine so that we will never be alone. He loses all his friendships. His father turns his back on him Loneliness so that you will never be alone. That's the gospel. That's the grace of God. The table represents that truth. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. The Bible calls people, everyone, everywhere. I don't care how old you are, what culture you are, to repent and believe on Jesus. If you've never done that, heed the scripture. Heed the Holy Spirit. Listen to Jesus. Turn from your sin. Turn from being your own Savior, your own Lord, trying to justify yourself. It'll never work. And turn to Jesus, where he has accomplished for you what you could never do. He lived that perfect life. You know you don't. And he died a death that you should have died in your place for your sin and then won victorious over it by rising from the dead. Trust in Jesus. Turn your life to Jesus. Yield to Jesus. Turn from your sin. That's what we need to do is repent from our sin and turn to Jesus. And if you're a Christian here today and maybe there's something in your own life that God has brought to your mind, I call the church to repentance. Myself, the pastor elders, the battle elders in process to repentance. It's a gift. Confess your sins, the Bible says, and God will forgive you. Does it? It's, existential. it's about opening your heart to the love of God, your heart will never be open to God's love and forgiveness while it's close to unforgiveness. That's the easy way of saying it. Trust in Jesus, turn from your sin, confess your sin, and then come and celebrate. We say this every, every month. Celebrate. It's not coming up, bowing your head, dreary. It's celebration. Father, you love me, you're chastising me, you're showing me my sin, I'm confessing it. You're faithful, you're just to forgive me of all my sins, and now I'm rejoicing because the body was broken, the blood was shed, and I have forgiveness of sins. Past, present, and future. That's the grace. Let's pray. And Father, thank you for your love for us. Father, thank you that your grace is sufficient for us, for for powers made perfect in our weaknesses. We are weak. We need you. Father, I pray, Lord, as your spirit not only convicts us of our sins, but Lord, your spirit shows us how loved we are. We look at the cross, we see how how sinful and broken we are. We look at the cross, we see how loved and valued we are. Yes, it's paradoxical, Lord, but it it is the good news of Jesus. 
So Father, help us to remain humble yet confident in you. Another paradox of truth of Scripture. Father, we pray, Lord, as we respond, you would give those who don't know you uh, the gift of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for your people that you would show us the things in our hearts that keep us from growing in the likeness of Christ. Ways of rebellion of our hearts. Begin with me, the other pastor elders, and work mightily through all of us, we pray. And then, Father, we ask that we would celebrate with joyous hearts that our sins have been forgiven.